pleased to be with you today is Professor Mark Edwards from St George's, um, who really gave an excellent talk talking about functional movement disorders at the ABN Autumn Conference. Um, Mark, do you want to? This is a particularly you know challenging group of patients, which I think a lot of neurologists um, have a great deal of difficulty assessing, uh, even making the diagnosis. Do you want to take us through a little bit about the kind of themes you touched on in your talk? Yeah, so it's it great to be here, and I was really pleased to be invited to give the talk. And I think that there are some basic principles which seem to characterise functional movement disorders, which are different from typical organic movement disorders. And I think probably the main one is that you can see that the movement disorder itself changes when the person is distracted. And that might be just a very brief thing, but you often see this very clear, really quite dramatic alteration in the disorder. So, for example, with functional tremor, uh, somebody might have a severe tremor which carries on during talking, but then when you get them to tap with their other hand in a very directed way, the tremor stops completely, just for a second or so. But it's telling you that, um, at least the way I would explain to patients, is that the basic wiring therefore looks like it can work. Uh, but obviously there's still a problem, and that's, that's a more complicated thing to explain. Uh, but I think those positive sorts of techniques can be helpful. One of the things I found very interesting was uh, just the theme we brought in about uh, attention or, or, or patients. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? That's an interesting concept. So I think that fundamentally normal movement does not involve attention to the body or at least to the mechanics of moving. And we all know situations where if we do that, it goes wrong. And you can see it in people taking penalty kicks or uh, match point at Wimbledon, those sorts of things. People make bizarre errors, which are largely because they're, they're overthinking movement. So I think the sports psychologists talk about all the time and in acting school, for example, too. But I think that's relevant in these patients because whether or not they're aware of it, there's an intense body-focused, self-focused attention. And when they move, they often talk about having to really think about movement, to control movement, and concentrate on movement. And that's part of the problem. That's why it's going wrong. And it's also why when you're directly examining people, you can often generate new problems that they have where they suddenly, for example, can't move their eyes or they suddenly lose control of their limbs just by this focusing of attention. Um, so I think that's a primary pathophysiological problem that's going on. There, of course, may be multiple reasons why it might be happening, but it, it's that that's interfering with movement a lot of the time. You also talked a lot about the issues of communication or the lack of communication with healthcare professionals. I mean, I was wondering um, when you're bringing in that sort of concept of attention and how that may, may be different in this group of patients, um, how, how do you go about explaining that to patients? So I, th I think it's in some ways easier in people who have a functional movement disorder than saying somebody where you think they have a functional sensory disturbance or cognitive disturbance. Because in a functional movement disorder, you can actually show people what you're using to make the diagnosis. So I would routinely explain to people, for example, their positive Hoover's sign, where they can't access their movement in their legs, but I can get it to happen by getting them to do something, getting it to be triggered more automatically. And the same thing with tremor suppressing. So I think that's a really useful basis on which to start from, because that's actually how you made the diagnosis. So I would typically start off with a general statement about the fact that I think that the problem is real and I don't think they're imagining it or putting it on because often people maybe that's been implied to them in the past so it's good to just get that on the table that it's a real problem and then to say well you know your movement problem does something very specific and it has this thing where you can't access normal movement but I can get it to happen so that must mean that the basic wiring is okay 
and obviously you're trying to move so there's a block in the middle there there's this problem with accessing or controlling the movement and that's what functional symptoms are and it's putting that explanation up front rather than going into an explanation which is completely different from what we usually do of saying you know you, all your tests are normal I think this is related to stress because that kind of doesn't make any sense to people and often just gets translated to sounding like it's not real that's not to say though that psychological factors are not important they can be very important in some people but I, the point I was making in the talk is that they're important in different ways for different people and for example there might be historical uh, psychological factors like previous trauma which are kind of dealt with but they have made the patient more vulnerable to developing these problems and it's not necessarily the case that delving into all of that is going to be useful it might be but it might not be so sort of explaining up front how you've made the diagnosis which contains within it the possibility of improvement as well if there's no damage and then starting a broad quite sort of a, a general discussion about risk factors and seeing where you get to with that. Another thing you uh, touched on was actually um, the potential harm that patients can come to with uh, functional and, and the example you gave of um, the patient with fixed dystonia having you know multiple surgical procedures or even amputations and things um, and I think that's an interesting you, you can you know think sometimes there's a group of patients who get a very raw deal and do you want to just explain a little bit about some of the potential risks that um, you know, patients have got from essentially iatrogenic damage? So I think that there's, there's an interaction here, I think, because there, there is a group of patients who have a very, what might be described in psychiatric literature as abnormal illness behaviour. So they have a very abnormal way of interacting with healthcare, maybe really seeking in a very abnormal way invasive procedures. But I think that group is quite small. I think there's a much larger group of people who have symptoms, they don't know what's wrong with them, and they go to a doctor, doctor doesn't really tell them anything that they can understand, and so they keep on going to more and more doctors. And in that route, you're likely to end up in a situation where you might be with some people who don't either with best intentions try to do stuff, like give you drugs or surgery, which you don't need and make you worse, or are really charlatans from a medical point of view and will do things like give um, toxic drugs, do operations which are completely unnecessary and make people much worse. So they are a very vulnerable group of patients uh, with some underlying factors but some of it is because of the way that healthcare deals with them, the fact that nobody really has ownership of that group of patients. So they are left kind of roving around um, and therefore vulnerable to unscrupulous practitioners and so on. So that, I think, calls for the need for a way to try and hold this patient group within a service that kind of takes the problem seriously, may not have many treatments with great evidence base at the moment, but at least does normal stuff, as we do for most people with a particular illness, in terms of trying to look after, the, after, after them and care for them. I mean, you, you touched on that. I mean, this is a... You know, this is a common uh, reason for consultation in neurology art patients. So, this is bread and butter stuff, really, for any neurologist. Do you want to comment? You alluded to this in the talk of actually how to manage these patients and actually where it goes wrong and actually ways, positive ways to make it better. I think that it, it really does all start with the diagnostic explanation. And I think if that bit doesn't go reasonably well, then it's quite difficult to get the person to any sort of treatment because they'll still be dissatisfied, they'll still be trying to seek other answers for what's wrong. So that bit has to, has to go well. 
I think because it's really common, all neurologists have to have a way, a script of dealing with that, which is going to be obviously different between different people, but we have to know that that's something that we do, just like we know we deal with migraine, deal with epilepsy and so on. But then there are a group of people who are going to need more specialist assessment and uh, management, and so there needs to be some specialist services. But again, those mustn't be ivory tower services those should be based in at least every regional neuroscience center and probably more widely than that and i think that the basic principles are really not that different from basic principles of neurorehabilitation in general except that lots of neurological problems cause both psychiatric and uh, physical problems and so in neuro rehab units there's typically access to psychiatry psychology as well as physio ot and so on so it's the same basic framework and it needs to be individualised to the patient. So, for example, some people have dominant pain. And there's good evidence for how to manage chronic pain. But the problem is that if, when somebody has pain and they've got a functional movement disorder, the pain teams don't want them because they say, well, it's nothing to do with us. It's this weird functional thing. Um, so I think having a coordinated group of people who are people who already exist within neurological services, trying to put them together to talk the same language about symptoms and then to, to triage people into specific treatments. And I was particularly talking about physiotherapy treatment, which I think when done in the right way um, can be very helpful for a group of patients. When physiotherapy is just done in a general way, it tends not to help. And so lots of physiotherapists have the idea that it doesn't really do much good. And they maybe have bad experiences. But I think when done in the right way, um, uh, sometimes with a slightly intensive treatment over a few days uh, with based on an understanding of what's wrong and how maybe to change that. There's recent studies to show that it can be really very effective. It can make people a lot better, it can save money. Um, so that's stuff that we need to gather more evidence about. Um, that's good and I look forward to seeing that paper in Gen NP about physiotherapy just, just saying just that. And um, I mean I think at that point probably just want to thank you very much indeed for your excellent lecture and I look forward to seeing you in the 2018 Birmingham Movement Disorders course. I look forward to that too. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot.